Welcome everybody to another episode of Turn and Talk Podcast. This is your host, Jay McTooth, and I'm very excited to have an old friend here with me today who's agreed to spend some time with us during this tumultuous sort of a time. So we're just very grateful to have you here to share your experience with us. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, it's nice to see you or hear you. So I did see you a little bit before. Nice to hear you. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to see you, you shortly and hear you also. Thank you for spending your time. I know this is a tough time right now to be doing a lot of other things, uh, so I really appreciate you taking out the time. Sure. would love to get started with a little bit about you, your story. How did you end up in education? What do you do? What have you done in education? Where are you now, et cetera? I always wanted to live in New York City. I grew up in uh, New Jersey, in Trenton, and I always wanted to be in New York. And after I graduated college at Rutgers, I decided, uh, you know, I, I was still, I wanted to teach in a way. So I did adult ed, and that was a lot of interesting work and a lot of hours, and you really dealt with, uh, you know, people with real-life situations. And so it was interesting to kind of break in that way. And then at the time, in 88, it was very easy, so to speak, to become a teacher because um, there's a shortage. And, you know, it was, I kind of just took a test. You know, what would I do with a piece of chalk and a blackboard using New York City to teach my subject? That was kind of the question I had to answer. And uh, that was kind of it. And you get to be a per diem, then you stay somewhere 30 days, and then you became kind of like, uh, you get appointed in a couple of years, and then you'll be tenured in four or five years. It's a lot different, you know, it's a lot, a lot different for younger people now. I think it's kind of really, there's a lot of stress in their life, how they have to get tenure now. But that's kind of my story, getting into teaching, because I was kind of, would always be teaching anyway. So, and mm. being a college professor didn't work out. <laughs> I was chagrined, to say the least. Uh-huh. So, what did you teach in your early years in New York City, and how did you? When you, what did you do in the classroom and in schools? I'll tell you, I'll tell you about my first year, last. But I taught um, ELA for six years. I taught social studies for six years. And then I was a dean for three years. So ELA was um, my favorite subject because I was a history major. You know, structured, but you know, have a lot of ad lib and just have a lot of fun. Be creative. And uh, social studies was a hard transition because we had to go teach on our license. Mm-hmm. And I forgot a lot of, you know, like for the kids, they need to know certain like particular facts like dates and things that aren't really that important in the grand scheme of things. But they got to know. Yeah. So I had to brush up on that. And I would have to look at my notes. It felt like really, it felt weird. It felt weird not to be able to command the content, so to speak. That was the fun of VL. That's the fun of being a teacher is when you command the content and then you're just learning how to, you know, just sharpen your own voice. Yeah, But my first year was pretty amazing in the sense that it wasn't like a first year. I was treated really, really, really well. Um, and people were really like the deans in my school really had my back. Um, the, the administration, older teachers like, were super nice to me. It was like I learned the other side of, um, you, know, you know, initial experiences in my second year, in my second to third year. Because then, you know, you get all the, hmm. you know, you get all the difficult things to do. And I remember my, my principal said, and I got, I got to like him, we got along, you know, but he said, um, you know, if, uh, you know, if you need me, then, you know, don't work here. Basically, like, take care of your business and don't be a problem. So that was kind of how you cut your teeth for certain people back then. But, um, but my first year was pretty amazing. And then, you know, the second year and on. Um, and, you know, teaching is a very, uh, you know, it's very emotional. You know, you develop a lot of... Um, really strong, you know, bonds for people, um, either because you respect, you know, how well they teach or you respect how, like, adept they are in social and emotional stuff or, you know, you just, you just, um, you know, appreciate people's, you know, different gifts. So and I always thought of teaching as, like, um, or a school, like a theatrical troupe where everyone could just interchange the parts because that's, that would seem to be the, to show the most, um, I guess sophistication, the most ability to teach the spectrum is just share all the different kinds of work. So, mm-hmm. and I left teaching, I left teaching because of, uh, I guess essentially not the law itself, no child left behind, but no child left behind, at least in my estimation, just, just allowed a lot of charlatans and chicanery to really infuse itself into the system and people took advantage of it and, we had a beautiful school that we worked so hard to build um, and it was basically taken away from us on some like, you know, some minuscule aspect of that law. Um, it was kind of, you know, kind of done to the school in a way. So it was, that was a difficult experience to lose a school that the teachers built and they put in administration that they're, they're, they alienated all of us. Mm-hmm. We all eventually left. 
And since I was disheartened by teaching, I exercised a supervisory degree and actually felt more like a teacher. Um, I felt more like a teacher um, my first, you know, as, as an AP, you know, as an assistant principal than, than, than my last couple of years. Mm-hmm. But it was interesting. My first, my first week on the job as an AP, I, was, I had to collect people's lesson plans. <laughs> and that was job. one of the things that was one of the things I had like gotten trouble for and had a lot of kind of vicious arguments with, you know, my administration about and was mm-hmm. just not cool about it at all. It was very, you know, uh, you know, so then that was, of course, that was the, that was what I had to go do the first thing. <laughs> yeah. So that, that was, that was, again, that was like, wow, so that's the best that that was the ticket price right there, I guess, to, to change. But it was pretty, wow. it's pretty funny. It's pretty funny, actually. Well, it's, you know, when you, when you mentioned 1988 and I'm like, has education changed? Well, let me ask you it this way. Do you think there are aspects of education that have changed over the 25 plus years and some that have remained the same? In your view, what's changed and what's stayed the same? I think, I think anything like in the world that's grassroots and organic, I don't think that really changes. But I think a lot of the, the social science now, I mean, I'd, I'd have to get into my footnotes and, and books, but, you know, I think just my general feel of things is that, you know, a lot of the social sciences are also used to somehow, you know, sell things, sell programs. They're, you know, it's data is, you know, for the data market. It's not necessarily data for actual, you know, direct help for people. I don't mm-hmm. know if that makes any sense. So I think it's changed in, like, for example, uh, when I was a teacher, the teachers voted um, on to accept curriculum that the district wanted to buy, believe it or not. Hmm. Um, and as things were changing with the No Child Left Behind, um, when that got instituted, we rejected, um, I forget, we rejected whatever that program was called. I forget what it was called, some program that was supposed to replace novels. So we rejected it. And then they just passed a rule that, you know, the district determines what you buy. So I'm just saying it's like that, that kind of like separation of, of the, the, the people who actually work mm-hmm. to the actual materials and the conditions which they work in. So, you know, like we both know a school pretty well um, mm-hmm. where, you know, every time they win the 26.2 mile marathon, they find out that they're not good enough to win the 50 mile marathon all of a sudden. And then they, they have to win a 50 mile marathon. And then when they win the 50 mile marathon, you know, getting through all the state's, um, you know, bureaucracy, then all of a sudden, you know, there's another race they didn't win somehow, you know. So I think that's really hard on schools now who are on lists that have yeah. to, like, produce. Um, I know of, of, you know, personally know of, of not where I'm at, but personally of friends where because they're, you know, uh, schools need improvement or schools that don't have high test scores, um, you know, they're having, pe- they're having their teachers work more than in other schools just because they have to, they have to show that they're trying, even though it's, it's counterproductive, um, you know, so it's, and that's a whole other conversation, right? Why does that school have an inordinate amount of um, IEP and L students, you know, right. so that's a whole other conversation, you know, but um, so that, that's why I think it's hard on particular schools now because those administrations are under intense pressure to be in, to be in lockstep with their districts and their, and, you know, and above that. And that it's not necessarily, um, you know, organic or democratic for the staff because in those schools, what's going to happen can change day by day and mm-hmm. people got to flow with it. Um, and, but it's not the administration necessarily. It's, it's the people above them. So it's hard. I think it's hard for certain schools, but it's hard for everybody. But yeah. um, it's changed in that way. It's just too as mm-hmm. much like here's my thing I was thinking about when I was about what, what I branding, just how schools have been forced to brand, you know. Um, in a particular district they would flood with middle schools, you know, twenty years ago. And all of a sudden there's too many schools and then they that that opens up, you know, for charters and whatnot. But then the what public schools were told to do is that you have to brand. You have to brand yourself, you have to attract parents, you have to market yourself. And I think that that kind of mentality is, is um, well, you see, it's not helping now. You know, you can see it's, it's not really helping now, but um, it's just a mentality of, of not really, it's not student-centered. I mean, student-centered is a great slogan, but it'd be, it'd be hard-pressed to call anything student-centered where different schools have different percentages of students 
they don't share the burden and they don't share the wealth. So that um, that makes me think about a different question. I wanted to ask you uh, in your in your role as a leader and an administrator, uh, what what do you see as your primary job given the climate and all of the different kinds of expectations that are on you as well as the different kind of expectations that you then have to have yeah. of teachers what is your role in a well, school building i think like let's say in a situation like this or or in general but in like higher pressure situations i mean empathy is a is a is a good kind of like um posture so to speak to have mm -hmm. you know i think it's good to be as um you know, open as possible you know i know as a teacher it's like sometimes really good to actually explain the lesson like you think of it yourself to the kids then then teach them the lesson so i think it's really good to try to show people as much as possible of like why 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 things are let's say in a bureaucratic sense why we're doing it this way or why this is needed and, and as much as possible what do you want to do like as a group how far can the group in influence a decision you know sometimes mm -hmm. um, you can have like a group decision and sometimes when you're dealing with you know your own supervisors you can only get so much so I think it's important to be very open um, I think um, it's good to be very empathetic um, I think it's important to be empathetic in the sense that you know if, if even if someone's kind of getting away with something several times you know it's kind of better that that, that instead of you kind of pouncing on someone the first time give people chances if it's three or four times then you know and it's like then it's a different then it's a different situation mm -hmm. and then at that point you really can determine how you feel about that person you know how that how it goes at that point but i have found that just you know even if you can't really solve a problem you just listen to somebody or you you kind of validate it or you you know you try to do something you know for them mm -hmm. or you explain it just explain it so i think um just in terms of like a, a, a feeling. And I, then after that, it's like you just have to be in constant contact with people and constantly communicate with them. You know, it's really important to, to respond to people, to, uh, you know, participate in what they're doing. You know, instead of just uh, answering questions, you know, providing materials with your own questions like you've been thinking about. I love teaching, so um, I think the... I think the most, one of the most important to do is somehow, some way teach. Hmm. And uh, I never, I never taught with the thought that you come watch a great lesson, so to speak. Yeah. I just, I just taught with a sense of this is what I'm trying to do. This is how I'm going to go about it. And, you know, I would like to teach a lot of times in front of particular groups of kids just to experience, like just to experience, but sometimes teachers have a hard time with kids and they get down on themselves. Mm -hmm. They don't realize, you know, how good, how good they were, you know, they don't realize like, right. I, I remember I was giving someone a, a, a post observation and the person was really upset because the kids weren't really listening. And I, you know, I just, I would talk and I said, well, you know, let's go through how many times you try to redirect them. And it was like, you know, an inordinate amount of times, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I didn't finish my lesson. I said, yeah, but you know, just why do you, why didn't you finish the lesson? And it's like, well, you know, cause I was, dealing with yeah say you were making adjustments you were you were you were maintaining control you know you that's so you were doing good and i said i said were any of the kids out of their seat I said there was no kids out of their seat i said okay so that's that's a, that's good that's good that's, <laughs> that's really good because you you didn't have complete control but somehow they stayed in their seats they might not have listened to you but they weren't violating any other boundaries so yeah i thought you know yeah you want to work on this that and the other but you know you really have to understand the context and more than that i said what happened when that class left this this is the thing about makes a teacher a teacher which is um there's very few professions that have to deal with this dynamic mm -hmm. yeah the next class came in and what did you have to do you had to treat them like nothing happened even <laughs> though you were very upset and did you do it yes you did <laughs> and that's the thing that that anyone who talks about like teachers or like uh I, I would still, I would find, I would be find it hard to believe someone thinks teachers have it easy, but anyone who might, I mean, it's like, just imagine that you just had a, a really tough moment and then you have to be cool again for the next group. Right. That's, that's so a teacher's difficult. medal, you know, that's a yeah. teacher's medal. So I don't know how you measure that for tenure. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's not on any of the rubrics I know of. What is your current role right now?
currently I'm a ATR assistant principal in a district mm-hmm. and I work at a, uh, you know, forward thinking school. It's considered, um, you know, progressive. And to me, it's progressive because it's old fashioned, mm-hmm. meaning it has autonomy. You know, it has autonomy. And, um, you know, schools, some schools earn autonomy and they're not on the hamster wheel that other right. schools are on. You know, those, those schools are, are, are more like hosts, you know, for, for some bureaucratic initiative, you know. Yeah. But that's, again, that's another, that's another, that's another huge topic. But, um, I think, um, we're going to, we're really going to, we're really going to see where, where, um, our quote unquote leaders' interests lie when it comes to educators after, you know, this crisis ends. I mean, it's going to be very interesting to how a group of people who were made to go to work when it was obviously a dangerous thing to do had to go to work. Right? Yeah. So let's just see how people are treated, you know? Let's see, let's see who, who they're going to, you know, like we're very concerned that non-tenured teachers are going to be uh, in jeopardy, you know, just very concerned how, you know, social media, you know, is going to be um, used or, you know, things get weaponized. And that's what's kind of a shame about our, what we're going through now is that you notice that even when the world's upside down, there's still certain behaviors we're doing in a society, like weaponizing things for a particular point of view. Yeah, sure. I think that's a very important point. For example, uh, right now, everybody, well, in a lot of schools, because of the COVID crisis and the remote teaching that's been going on in our city anyway, a lot of people have to put stuff up on the internet. And obviously, you know, whatever goes on the internet stays on the internet, you know? That's it. And and there's no really pulling back. So this idea about weaponizing, I think it's it's kind of scary to think about that I'm putting my uh, yeah, lesson plans and things and materials outside online and now they're there forever and they can be used to determine whether or not I was effective during this crazy time. Yeah, so that's, um, you, it seems kind of like out there if that would happen in a way, right? But you just, you just don't know. And I get people's reticence not to, not to do it. But the thing is, you know what's going to happen is that teachers are going to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, administrators, like on Monday, administrators, for example, they're not paid, I guess, like, what's it, it's, I don't know, I think it's like 45 or 50 minutes of that 80 minutes. Administrators aren't paid for that. Hmm. And the logic of the DOE was like, they're educators, they're not going to, they're going to go, they're not going to leave the kids hanging. Right. And that's the same logic, you know, as much as like, I, let's say I don't want to put myself on the internet. You never see you. You've never seen a picture of me, basically, unless I don't know. I don't put it up of myself, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, I don't have one like one face on Instagram, for example. Sure. But I would put my face on the, in the internet to have it, if I had to teach a class, you know, because that's how educators are. That's that's the thing of it. So it's they just put you over a barrel because you're you became a teacher essentially to, you know, how would you say, you know help people develop and grow so how it's like you're not going to not do anything you can even if even if you're going to have a cost every teacher went to work there wasn't high absenteeism there wasn't that much of a high absenteeism Mm -mm. i don't think those three days we had to go in no that was that was really really i was very upset by that and i still am i think i'm not i'm not happy that that uh we were put in that sort of danger yeah just because, and and then I mean, those were those were days when cases were multiplying at yeah. a crazy rate. But yeah. we're asking people to come in; it was ridiculous. So, so I think if like you know the city doesn't try to use this against the profession or try to you know get rid of personnel for budget costs, I think if the city does the right thing and really just you know leaves leaves people alone, that's fine. You know that that'd be fine for me. Leave everybody alone. But it does more. It just offers more, or is supportive. It says, "Don't worry. No one, no, no one's losing their job, you know, or something." But we'll see, because people, people risk their lives to go to work. I mean, it, sound, it really sounds exaggerated, right? Yeah, but it's not. But it's not. It's so not. That's it's what's so, so you know, so reckoning, man. It's like, uh, you know, I mean, I don't. I, I'm assuming these stories are true, but the pictures you see of like rivers around the world that were once polluted. The canals in Venice, there's fish in them. There's lot, they're alive. They're no longer dark. They're like blue. Mm-hmm. You seen that? No, I haven't. 
Yeah, so it's almost like without this, without industry happening, the planet pretty quickly is like, uh, you know, greening Becoming itself. Becoming alive again, yeah. So who knows, man? Maybe it bought us another twenty years on climate change. But I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of years. Well, let's let's talk about this current ongoing crisis. It, it, what has surprised you the most, if anything, in the um, handling of the situation, or just how well, I guess, I guess, might I have guess, stepped up? I guess what surprised me the most, and now it, I guess, I guess what it is, it's it's my biggest hope didn't happen. So let's put it that way. Hmm. You know, it's there's still people divided on political lines over how this has been handled. So self-claimer, I don't, I don't think the, you know, the person who's our president is, you know, competent. Um, it's a neutral term. Hmm. It's pretty inept. Um, so I don't think it's, I don't think it's wrong if you, even if you support that party, where you support those policies, the other policies, you, you have to be like, no, this is, this is not good. And, you know, I don't see how I can support this. So I guess that's my biggest hope that, that, that would have happened. I still have some family members that I thought we could have some conversation around this with, but it's obviously off limits. I try to, I, I put it off limits so I could just go around them. But yeah. then I was trying to like poke around, like, you know, just some neutral comments, some big statistics, something, but never, would, and I said, all right, just, I'm not even going to, it's probably better because I get this or, or somebody saying, oh yeah, it really caught us off guard. It's like, no, 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 to not catch us. Yeah, it caught us off guard, but we knew. Right. So <laughs> that you don't know that we knew or that you're not going to acknowledge that. I get it if you're not going to change your opinion when it comes to like uh, Ukraine. Right. Because you, you've, seen, you've seen enough spy movies that you don't believe anything you believe. Who knows? Right. I get it. I get it. You know, right. it's, it's, <laughs> But when you know that, like, um, there's been a, a pathogen released that could have been more prevented, maybe not prevented, more prevented, and you're okay, like, it's like, you know, I love you and it's okay to burn my house down. It's not like that. No. So I'm a little, so that's a little surprising. The other surprising thing is, like, people being the same, you know, getting cut off in traffic, like, what, why are you cutting me <laughs> off? The world's, like, over, man. Like, what's going on here, you know? Or uh, I, I, I don't take the kids out anymore, but they have a yard we can go into. And, um, and a person walks kind of close to them. And like, just like, come on, like, like what, what is going on here? Like, you, you have a, honestly, you have a whole football field. <laughs> like, you're like, you're so consumed in your world still. Yeah. Like, like, it, it, like you can't look at your phone and know if you're 60 away from someone. Like, that's a basic premise, right? But right. like you must walk into my kids, you're so close. And it's like, so I guess the unawareness in a way, like I'm out a lot. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not inside all the time. I'm trying to be like, you know, safe as I can about it. So I guess, yeah. I guess that's, that's one thing. And then, yeah, it's just people, people not, not, not changing, like just same kind of um, vision that they're looking at the world. Do you think schools will ever be the same again after this? Or do you think this is just an episode that'll go by and we'll be back? This, to... this, this allows me to give you my grand theory. I didn't even think about it, but I, this is my grand theory of schooling. In, gen, in the general comparison, just like there were, there were teach-ins in the 60s, mm -hmm. there's going to be um, teach-outs in the 30s, maybe the late 20s, early 30s. But what, by, what I mean by that is not for little kids, maybe kids 16 and up, sophomores, juniors in high schools. What do they need a school for? The way schools are constructed right now. What do they need school for? They can go to the park. They can go to Central Park. They got all the equipment they need. Well, it seems to be there's a lot of people who are missing the brick and mortar are making an argument about, you know, the social contact. and uh... They'll have it, though, right? They'll have social contact. They'll be among their peers. And maybe other older people want to go there and say, yeah, I'll, I'll go and uh, – I'll join them. I'll go and teach them. I'm just saying is I don't, that's, that's how I think school would have to change in a way mm -hmm. because school is, it's in the clutches of people who take down countries, you know, let alone education systems, you know, so it's in the clutches in my opinion, you know, mm -hmm. um, we, we, and we have, you know, we have a leadership that, you know, puts people in place that, you know, who, who want to reallow, those scam colleges, you know, things like that. So it's become such a business that people can't live without it. So to reform it would be like anything else. It'd be like redistributing wealth. 
Mm-hmm. So since the kids are the wealth, the only way that I think it could happen is that they, if they finally said enough. It's like what, like, like it's just like you insane people allowed, like who knows how many people to die in this, in this crisis. And now like, you know, like what, what is, what are you teaching me? You know? And so I, yeah, I can see that happening. I don't think the youth um, can depend on this generation. Uh, look at the, they got to vote for dinosaurs to lead their country. <laughs> I mean, at least Bernie Sanders, you know, had some fire. So you're a kid, Joe Biden, Donald Trump. I mean, I don't know. Right. <laughs> like That's the young people I see for like Donald Trump seem a bit aggressive, right? Mm-hmm. And the young people I see for like, like if they even like, oh God, the opponent, let's just like, like they're just like, they'll vote for the guy, but they're just like, just, just chill. Right. You know, it's like, they're not really be excited about. In your view, are public schools political spaces? Yeah, and I mean, absolutely. And I, I especially mean that in the sense that, you know, we're told as teachers always, keep your political views aside. No, keep your, no. Is that, no, there are absolutely political spaces now, how, how the politics are allowed to be expressed. Yeah, that definitely is a, an issue. But there, there, there are political spaces, um, again, in many ways in my mind. Um, I know there's a book that came out recently. I don't know the, the, the um, author's name. I forget her name. But it's about um, spaces and how people of color are outlawed from spaces that, that came out when Starbucks happened in Philadelphia, with right, the right. black men going to getting arrested. Yeah. So her whole book was about trespass laws and, and space laws from Jim Crow times to now. And I think, hmm. you know, the idea of who's allowed to be in a space. So in the building I used to work at, why aren't the kids that I used to work with in that neighborhood allowed to be in that space anymore? Why did half their building have to be given to a charter school? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, saying yes or no about charters in my comment. Mm-hmm. But why did another school have to take their space? Hmm. And, and why, why is the social demographics of the two groups of kids so starkly different? Right. Right? It just so happens that that particular school has you know, really good leadership and they're able to fend off you know, the onslaught. So, hmm. so it's, definitely, it's definitely a political space in the sense of just like trespass laws, who is allowed to have this space or why in certain buildings does the one school have the music program and a piano and the other school doesn't. It's just the inequity is in the same building. It's like giving one child, you know, breakfast and, and one child, you know, basically nothing. It doesn't make any sense, but as we were talking about before, that's the mode of, that's the mode of production. That's, that's what this system relies upon that, that type of, um, product, so to speak, you know, and then again, we're the host industry for all the people that fix it. You were talking about, you know, schools and resources and, the, and, and some schools having more than the others and demographics being different or with that sort of a scenario, there's always a statement like, oh, this school is not doing well or this school is failing or their uh, enrollment is too low or they have extra space anyway. <laughs> there's all kinds of uh, statements that are used to justify adding additional schools, whether whatever this, the schools may be. Right. So my question is specific to the statement about a failing school. A lot of people okay. say that some schools are failing and how long are you going to let them fail? And, and, and of course, you, you need to get rid of them or put a different school and, and, and slowly get, get rid of them or something like that. Sure. What would be your solution to schools that have been categorized as failing or unsuccessful? What to do with them? Okay, so just, I don't think this can happen, but, um, or it would be allowed to happen, but you allow that school to create a three-year plan. Those teachers commit, those who are going to stay, those who commit to stay there, you know, mm-hmm. for that, and then you, you implement your plan, whatever it is, you know, whatever you think that's going to improve your student body, improve your, whatever that you need to improve. But I also think that you're allowed to keep narrative data. You're allowed to keep other data. You're allowed to keep social-emotional data. I think you're allowed mm-hmm. to keep a, a, an assortment of data, right? And then I think, you know, part of, part of your plan is, you know, what's school for? How are we integrated into our community? How do we benefit them? And, and how, how are we mutually, mutually aiding each other? And you, that's your plan, right? Sure. And you, do, and you do that. And you come up with all kinds of ideas to make that happen. 
you know, those ideas can be useful for other schools, you know, a registry of, of health supports in our neighborhood, whatever it is. Sure. And, you know, um, and, and you allow some other theories, not just market theories. You allow, you allow other, other social scientists who talk about the effect of poverty and the effect of different things. And you try to come up with a fair analysis, you know? You try to get a fair analysis of that school. And if it's a benefit to the community, in spite of what might not be particular kinds of scores, if it's a benefit and kids are learning and kids want to come and kids are doing projects, because you can make your school anything you want. Sure. Understood that's out there, right? So let's go to the more to the real world. Okay. Is there's a context, right? There's a context to you gotta audit your school. You have to audit your school. What's the context? When did things change? What what was happening? You know, you, you, not that you can not that you can change any of that, but you have to know what that is. Did your clientele change? Did the superintendent change? But all of a sudden from getting no um uh you know IEP students, your school gets them all or whatever. You know, you have to look at the context. Yeah. Right. And then once you establish context, right, you, you, you're going to establish what you need to shore up. And I'm not a test person. I can't stand the test. I can't stand the metrics. I can't stand them. But just as an exercise in, in winning, mm-hmm. you know, what, what's, what is not, and not just like I hate those things, leverage point. No, what kind of thinking can we have kids do that's always high level thinking and still get them ready for this, you know, this, um, test, whatever you want to call it. So, so I, I think, it ha- so that's it. So you, you have to be very in, ingrained in terms of what it make and how do I put it? It's got to be very project based. Like you, I know people who deal with um, difficult populations. How is it that their kids love coming to class mm-hmm. and, and other people don't? I think what it is, is that they have a lot of fun. You know, they have a lot of hands on. I think if you look at the Danielson rubric, right? Right. What gets you a four is the kid behaving like a teacher, right? So if you look at all the verbs in level four, they're all the highest of Bloom's taxonomy, all the highest level thinking verbs. Sure. So I, so I get that Johnny can't, t- you know, because I know Johnny can't pass the test. But somehow he, 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 he did a circuit board. He did right, it. yeah. You know, he did it, and he, you know, and he wanted to do it or, or whatever. You know, Johnny doesn't write well, but he made a beautiful diorama about the book he heard, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and uh, so-and-so is really terrible, um, can't read a lick, but is like a gifted guitarist. You know what I'm saying? I know I'm being a little bit of like, like overboard, but um, what I'm saying is, is that the, the two, and it's way easier said than done, but you, you can't, it's hard for a school to do that when they're constantly doing paperwork for the state. So, it's really, really super difficult. I, I don't know, honestly, my experience of being in a school like that, it was just creating, it was just always creating time and space somehow, always creating time and space for the benefit of making meaning. I know that sounds really like abstract, but. But it's but, like, I, I've been in, in those schools too, and it's like you're constantly being asked to document everything you do and most of the time is spent on figuring out how to document things (laughs) than to actually go out and do them and perfect them so you spend all your leadership time and meetings in figuring out how to submit this survey or how to put together this 5500 page document whatever maybe and and then you know the energy you have left to go face the children with is lower than what it would have been if you had just had spent that time on yeah. designing. And, yeah. And you know what? If you get off the list, like, just leave the school alone. Like, you know, I know of schools that they get off one list and then, like, a year later, they get on another list. It's like, come on. You know, right. you, you made a school focus on an area of weakness. And you force them to put more resources there. And then because they don't do as well in the area that they had to take the resources from, it's just what I'm saying. It's not, it's not fair. So that's, that's why I think they just made it a little more fair because you're always going to have to outsmart the system, so to speak. That's just part of the deal. And I think that, you know, educators can accept that. But when you can never, like, win, like, when you can never win, it seems, or, like, you finally, you do win, you do it, and then, oh, new list, 
Right. It's not. It's not a fair. I don't think it's a fair, a fair judgment of that of that particular school. So, an extension of that question: Then, what should be the measure of of a school's progress or performance? Do you like the language of effective versus ineffective? Oh, <sighs> uh, they've ruined that word for me. Yeah, they've ruined the word. <laughs> that word is gone. Yeah. So, how should schools' performance be described, and what should schools' performance be? you know um stacked up against yeah it's it's um i think it's really difficult and i think it's just easier to use numbers you know i think it, it is mm -hmm. maybe some numbers you know maybe some numbers that could be helpful from a particular middle school you know how many of the kids who leave you know graduate high school graduate college those those particular um you know there are report cards for the 21st century you know that are that are more social you know social emotional based you know sure. like ability to, ability to deal with ambiguity ability to um you know deal with setback uh, ability to work through a problem and i don't right, regret persistent. that word that word is i can't take that word that's another one um, <laughs> it's another one but the idea that somehow someone finds a way to be persistent in the face of struggle mm -hmm. that is something that's important and i think but it's it's easier to kind of look at numbers i think some people are i think a lot of i think a lot of um evaluators I think a lot of supervisors are as fair as humanly possible i do think they are i mean i, I do um but i can tell you from the, the teacher i mentioned in terms of she thought her lesson was really not good mm -hmm. the other the other ap talked to her and, and she had her crying because she's holding her you didn't finish the lesson and things like that so you know that's the problem and then what about the lesson that's a 2.75 you know right. or 2.8 you know it's hard it's it's really it's really really hard and if if one thing in danielson is developing how can anything else not be if you really think about it but it's weird because i've observed teachers and you know how i put it so they are they are like it's so weird they're assessing the kids but the questioning i don't know it's hard to describe like the questioning would be really good to get them engaged in the project right like wow it's really great questioning but then they don't assess the answers right. so it's like what and it's hard so so you're giving you're giving threes in 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 questioning and twos and um assessing or vice versa and even as an administrator like it's like confusing i don't want to give you all twos or like but it's very difficult so i think i think it's still subjective so there has to be some place for narrative there has to be some place to somehow recognize child development all this is about child development but it's always interpreted through numbers yeah. um and numbers that are produced by fallible humans and look and if i if i don't like you i'm the principal i'm giving you the toughest class and i'm and you're not going to do as well as my buddy who i like you know give him the easy classes and if you don't like it you're going to leave anyway and that's what i want mm -hmm. and that's that's how i came up in the system so you know if you were to argue with the principal then the only thing that you had to expect was a really bad schedule. People often often wonder uh, what is the role of the school principal in today's uh, world and in today's schools and, and education. What Do you think the role of the principal changes depending on the type of school they're in, like urban versus suburban schools? Or do you view the role of a school leader to be a universal kind of a thing? And what is it? I definitely think part of it's universal. And I think what's changed... Um, there's more of an emphasis on instruction knowledge um, a, a, in addition to to management knowledge and I think that's that's a pretty pretty important distinction um, i I know most of the principal principals and aps that I've met in the past you know 10 15 years all of them uh, either were teachers or can teach and I can't say that you know from my early career because those administrators a lot of times they got out of the classroom pretty quickly where they came from kind of non-major subject um, areas. So it was more about managing and controlling. You know, the way that you were judged wasn't necessarily so data-based, you know, like it is now, or at least as broad of a database. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, so I think what's, what's you know, similar in no matter where you're at is, again, how do you, how do you um, take the least amount of time to provide the most important information right um and leaving leaving the most amount of time for people to work with that and create something meaningful for kids how do you kind of look at socio emotional conditions that could not only just like affect students but how do you create an environment that 
supports, you know, all the different, you know, we all know that kids are going to be judged on their scores, right? But what else can you do to support other factors, you know, in terms of the the quality of the classroom, the environment of your school, resources, you know, what, what was available to kids, you know, what are some of the activities that, you know, they can kind of participate in or kind of create or direct. So I think, I think the hardest job for a principal in any kind of environment is in really maximizing the resources you're given to what you focus on. Like, like you're asking your staff to put their best mind on what, then when you kind of get a sense of that, I like when we, I really got into when a school, like we would have a, a kind of a text that we would read mm-hmm. and we'd ground ourselves, like say in a conversation, like academic conversation text. And then you just practice that, not because it's right or wrong, good or bad, but you practice it because you, you, you kind of believe you look it over. It seems like really good to use, but you practice it to experience it, see what you learn from it and see if it, see how it has like, changes your academic environment, you know, how the kids respond to it. But it also makes it kind of easier for the staff that there's just one, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of things. If we have a grounding text and we can mm-hmm. bring back our own ideas to the grounding text, we can understand each other maybe a little bit better because we have a common common source. What do you think then is the school leader or leader's responsibilities toward the teachers in the building? Well, let, let me answer it more this way before I get to, to a, a kind of a negative example. Again, I think, I think the responsibility is to listen. And just try to establish a pattern with people that even when you can't give them everything that they want or need, it's kind of understood that, you know, whatever you're giving them is really the best you can do. And if you can do better, you will. And if you're wrong, they'll say you're wrong, you know. So I think it's important to, um, you know, as, as much as possible, kind of have that perception, at least of yourself, you know, that you're going to try, you're going to work. Um, but at the same time, you know, the decisions aren't always going to um, make everybody happy. Yeah, I, well, I was asking that question because it, it's a very tricky job, it, it appears, for the school leader, right? On but, the one hand, on the one hand, the staff requires not only consistency, but a sense of stability and security where right. they can they can be doing something and if things are going well that they don't have to necessarily do great new things and rebuild and always be under this pressure of, right, of right. doing new things, right? The people ex- right. like to feel like they've got something and you know they're running it and it's going well right. let's keep going with it but the, on the other hand it's a school so it is breathing and living organism in a way it's going to yeah. change it's going to grow it's, it's going to get sick it's going to get other doctors coming in to yeah. try to treat it uh, yeah, successfully yeah. or unsuccessfully and that creates this often in a lot of schools this uh, unpredictability and and yeah, people yeah get really stressed out by that. Absolutely. I, I want to backtrack a little, just consistency and equity, those things, you know, you can do, but the, the, this is maybe, this is the irony of it, is that the person who's the, the, the let's say the least, um, well, use this, we'll use this term, which I don't like, the least effective, let's say. They're the one, a lot of times, they're the first ones to cry foul when, when someone who works super hard and super, super teacher you know, maybe gets a couple inches space or right. gets maybe something. So, oh, you didn't do that for me. And it's like, or, or on the other side, when, uh, you know, you have people not maybe not doing well and being so resistant to the feedback or, or having, you know, having habits like, like they might be late a lot. So then there's another person who, who might've had a, not such a good lesson and you yeah. really can't, you really can't cut them a break because the other person was so was so like aggressive in in not wanting to change and really and and just making it trying to make it like it's personal and things like that. So then if you if you reward someone's effort who really cares, the person who was very like say not caring says that's a foul. You know what you didn't do that for me. Like if, that, if yeah. he gets that score, what you know it's, that that can be really hard. So a lot of times, equity can disproportionately fall on those who are working harder. You know, or yeah, better, yeah. so to speak. It's so that's the hard. I would hate it. That's what I hated the most. I hated the most when I had to, um, when it was an 80 20 situation, I had to treat like a 50 50. Yeah. I had to like help people negotiate or solve problems. And it just was, those are hard. There's a third group that I come across often, which is teachers who feel like they're working really, really hard and they're just not recognized. 
and they're just wrong profession to be in. Yeah, surely. But I'm talking about recognized by their supervisors. I think to to no, some extent, to, yeah, that's it's correct. a reasonable expectation to be yes. to be recognized by people yeah. who are in yeah. charge of you. Oh, you know? absolutely. No, that that I agree. I think I I was just saying any time outside of the profession. Sure, or, sure, or sure. If you get it's like yeah, we know that. Um, yeah. But yeah, in terms of like a colleague, a supervisor in particular, yeah, it's it's a, it's very it's it's and again I say it's, it's more than just um, you know I think recognizing it and, and acknowledging you recognize it if you can somehow incorporate it or add to it in the sense of you know I really I see really what you're doing with your um, you know with your uh, wait time it's really cool and I like the ideas you have I was looking at this article. Also talked about. I don't know if you read this person, but I, you know, you really got me into this. So I really appreciate. It. You know what I'm saying? Like you, and okay. it's true. You do those things, and I think I think it's important. If like to, again, you know, they they ruined the term lifelong learner. You always have to reinvent yourself. So I think I think it's good to if you're open to, you know, acknowledging people and recognizing them. That can that if you have an open mind, it'll help you kind of also improve your practice because you'll you'll want to look at it or you'll think like, okay, so this can help that person. You know, mm -hmm. and it's, it, you, a whole a whole list of things starts to happen. But I think, yeah, for sure, you have to recognize people. Absolutely. Well, related to that, you know, I I wanted to talk to you about um, teacher training and and teacher professional development. There's always professional development going on in schools. There's yeah. so much of it. It's like uh, it just, it's so many meetings yeah. and so on and so forth. In terms of professional development, what what is what what do you think is effective in getting you know teachers to Develop the skills that are are needed yeah. to to facilitate. You're right. The class. You got hard, you got hardware and software, right? So I'm going to focus on the software. Yeah. I think one thing the city's been doing well, well, at least the parts that I know that are doing it. I think the whole city's doing it, but the whole um the whole push towards equity. Uh, that might mean a lot to different people. There's been a lot of required PDs for implicit bias training. So I think you know on the software level. You know, like that's that's a really really important step. I wish that we could get to the to the next step and, and um, you know talk about poverty, and not just poverty as a social uh, social consequence, but poverty as a construct. And and I know that's probably not going to happen, you know. Mm -hmm. But that to me is an important conversation. I think we're kind of not doing poverty, but we're do we're, we're analyzing a construct of you know race relations, which definitely. Which you know, if you it could be brought into a large argument about you know economics and things like that. So I think that's a really, really, really important direction to go in. Um, I think it's really important to go in um, like alternative report cards, so to speak, alternative grading. Um, not that you don't teach math in ELA anymore, but things that can't get a number, like again, um, yeah. dealing with new situations, working with the, working in pairs, working in groups. Um, dealing with difficulty, you know, working through not understanding. Things like that I think um there has to be more 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 for people to learn about and and you know, I don't I'm not saying people don't take it seriously, but it's it's hard to define so it could be dismissed. But I think I think that those those pushes are important. But then in terms of just like your hardware, I mean you you have to think of you know, you have to think of your 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 lesson. I think if um, I think it'd be hard pressed. It'd be like having if kids were engaged. If you'd be hard pressed to see them misbehaving, right? Yeah. Um, so I think if um, if kids were transitioning, you know, pretty pretty smoothly. I think if kids were were I hate the word see, effectively works here. If kids were transitioning <laughs> um, effectively between classes uh, or you know between spaces or between you know thoughts, right? If they were transitioning effectively, I think you'd be hard pressed to say it wasn't a good lesson, you know, mm -hmm. because you're not going to transition smoothly if you're not engaged in the lesson, if you didn't find the lesson valuable in some, some way, shape or form. What are your thoughts on evidence-based teaching? Because lately this term is being thrown out a what, lot, right? Evidence-based evidence -based teaching. And I think what it says, what it uh, it meant to stresses that teachers should be using practices that are um are you know grounded in in research now there's a conflict that not a lot of people talk about in this right if if one is to find practices that are driven by research or or that are supported by research then one has to also acknowledge that research is always yeah. behind the educator 
the educator yeah. has to try a thing first, and then someone yeah. has to decide to research it and then yeah. show us what they found as results in I, that I, particular population. Absolutely. So and research is always I, behind. So how can you wait for research long it. enough to verify all of your practices? I think, um, well, action research, I think when you make things local, and again, this redistribution of resources will call, will, will not allow, will be a formidable, formidable obstacle, but I've always loved action research. So you're saying people should do their own research in their own community? A school, a school, I mean, the, the research is out there, right? So research can inspire some new ideas, right? So the sure. teaching will still be ahead of the research. So I mean it like that. I mean it like it's still part of the team, so to speak. It's still part of that that um, canon, but it, it's more of the, um, the the experiment. The experimentalism of it is is not that. It's not following any rules. It's really trying to decipher what the new rules will be before we get there, right? Okay. So I think I think action research, um, um, not just as the individual, but I think action research works better. You know, with a, with a group of people, I think you can have your own thoughts about it, but within the group, I think it's kind of interesting. It's kind of fun. So I think, I think action research is, is, the, is, but again, that's, that's, um, that might not be what you're allowed to do. If that's you're what I'm saying. That kind of thing is less feasible because it's like the cart before the horse is like what you're doing should be based on research, but you can't be doing Something yeah, that like, there isn't a lot of evidence for. Right. I think there's a, you know, and I don't know if, it, if the system can do it. There's a certain leniency there. There's got to be a certain, a certain acceptance of, of that mm -hmm. kind of contradiction. And the contradiction can't always come out on the side of, you know, the bigger power, like the money power, the, the, sure. in, in the you know, the industrial aspect of this. It can't always come out on that side. And it tends to, you know, it tends to come out on that side. Um, but I, I was also thinking you have different research that's being used and, and others that are not. So, for example, um, this whole idea of no, no child left behind, for example, um, and how they you know, want to use that to penalize educators, get rid of people, like clean sure. out the system. So there's a, there's a research right out there. I, uh, I think it's P.T. Snow, and I can't think of this guy's name now. I'll get it for you. There's a body of and, research suggesting that's not right, a but valid he said, inference but to make out of that said, data. But he's, he's good. He said, okay, I totally accept that. Totally get it. I'm gonna go, let's go with that. But let's also do this. Let's also say no child left in poverty in 20 years. And if they are kids in poverty, then every governor, the Congress, you just resign too. So let's, I'm, all, I'm all for right. it. Let's go for <laughs> it, guys. Of course, you know, they're not going to, they, that's, so I, so that was, uh, I got, I got involved in a whole body of research about that, that I wasn't as aware of. And, um, you know, I think it's one of the questions we're going to ask anyway, but just how like this, um, this idea that the United States is behind in the world is a, to yeah. me is such a huge that's fallacy. It's such a huge fallacy, <laughs> right? Yeah. This idea that, that, you know, poverty is probably not the number one factor in almost anything. <laughs> Is, is hopefully coming to be shown for the fallacy that, you know, that it is. I mean. Well, speaking of research driven, all research is suggesting that there's a very strong body of research that <laughs> is clearly showing that. When, but we you know wanna... what? Ar Arnie Duncan never, ever, ever used the word poverty in any of his speeches. Let's call them that. Mm -hmm. Never used the word poverty. So it's, it's not something they can do because, you know, that's, that doesn't fit. That doesn't fit. You know the economic model of look. Half the kids are geared to get or get ones and twos every year, and half the kids get threes and fours. Right. No matter what happens, test. That's how it breaks down. Mm -hmm. And for companies, that's awesome. You know exactly how much stuff you got to print for remediation, you know, yeah. and you're set. You know. And um, there's a whole other thing, man. I've analyzed the state tests. I'm sure you have too. And what get what's interesting is it is a definitely it could be a sixth grade test, but I did one two years ago. I did the Fry analysis, just kept it simple. Mm -hmm. That test was definitely a sixth grade test. However, it veered from fourth grade level um, reading to eighth grade level. Well, that's it. It has to. So right? the, the, everything that, statistically is, speaking, that's how you would make an assessment. You can't yeah, make an you, assessment that lets a kid hit the ceiling. But what happens if if the too many questions are based in the grade level material above sixth grade. You see what I mean? Sure. That, and then you put on, um, you put on, um, 
field test questions that don't count and a kid might waste their, you know, their processing energy on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, 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 um, you know, it's inherently, you know, it does, it just, it can't do what it says it does for a lot of reasons because instead of the company doing their own research and development, they're forcing the kids to do it by putting on these questions that won't count. So it's really um, a system that does end up eating its tail, so to speak. But again, that's yeah. another conversation. It is, but related to this conversation with all of these pressures and all these things going on, um, you know, I, I mentioned it in my previous episodes too. I always talk about this one New York Post article from a month ago where they talked about, you know, a plenty of teachers are leaving in the first uh, four or five years of teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, what, what do you think is the reason? And how to stop it? Uh, well, I think it's also it's just kind of the nature of work. I mean, teaching is teaching is probably one of the, or being an educator is probably one of the last professions where there's still an expectation you might be somewhere for you know a long time. Oh right. But um, and I think and I learned this you know from reading about like um, like future report cards actually because it's this stuff that's put out it's put out by the Future Society that's the group among mm-hmm. other groups. And so they just talk about just how the nature of work is changing. Um, for them, the number one skill in the uh, 21st century is comfort with ambiguity um, because because the nature of work is making people, you know, not really be in one spot for a long time. Now, the reasons why people burn out or teachers burn out or teachers want to leave a building, when those reasons are, you know, because they're not being treated well or, or um, you know, things of that nature, yeah. I think I think that's starting to be a little bit different category. I think on, on one hand, some people are leaving well um, because that that just tends to be the nature of our economy. You know how things are working. This happening across the board. Um, you know, and then you could be at a difficult school. You could be a good teacher at a difficult school, mm-hmm. and you know you just want to. You might want to move on. Uh, that's always unfortunate because then you know the kind of the stuff that those teachers learn in the crucible. Right. You know, they've, they've taken away in a way, but for the things we were talking about that are, that are, aren't really fair or equitable for people that make them not like burn out or not enjoy the profession. I think those, those should never be there. Those should always be worked on. So yeah, in so your estimation, it sounds like a lot of the teachers are, they leave the profession because it's like the natural cycle of things these days. Some of them. I, I don't, I don't know how, what the percentage is. I know that's, I know that's part of it now. But I think there's probably there's still too many leaving for the wrong reasons. I think. But again, I think it's, I think there's a, probably a certain percentage that is just it's just kind of like one of the norms maybe of our culture. So our last question then, if you can wave a magic wand, what are some things you would do to strengthen our education system? Well, like I said, I think one of the one of the reasons that the United States, in my you know, I don't think it's I think it's more than opinion. I think you can prove it is by far the greatest education system on earth by far. You know, the countries that are allegedly more effective than we are have very few ethnic groups. It, if they have more than two or three, sure. you know, it, it would be unusual. They, they weed off a lot of kids before um, high school, but we take, we, we take, we take all, everybody, we take all kids and we're held accountable for the kid in the most comfortable situation to the kid in the most dire. The expectation is that a school will, will treat them equally and educate them equally, which is, we know, which on one level is unfair. I don't mind that expectation for what's, you know, used against people sometimes, but I, right. you know, but I, but, um, so I think we're, our, we're way, we're just, you can't compare because we educate everyone. We give everyone an opportunity and we, we are the, we're in the time we're in and we're always in this kind of time because people, um, don't get along or they're made to think they won't get along. So one of the biggest things that's affecting schools still is segregation. You know, we can't solve it, you know, f- like forcefully, you know, busting mm-hmm. like they did in Boston, right? You know, it, 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 sometimes you have to solve things forcefully, but now it's, we're an equal or we're kind of a free society in so many ways and, and different kinds of people are getting together, at least on TV and entertainment and social media. There's so much interaction, right? Mm-hmm. But we, but but statistically, we know that that schools can be are as segregated as ever. Yeah. So again, that that idea of sharing the wealth and the burden of what we are as a culture and what we are as a people, um, I, I, you know, that, that I think it. I think if we were in a situation to appreciate other other people more, but you can't do that. You're not around those people. 
So it's kind of like in a, in a diverse neighborhood or in a diverse city like New York, you know, you have some schools with, there's 20% IEP students in the district. You'll have some schools with 40% yep. of those kids and some schools with eight. So right there, you know, I think once you, if you could just level the field in terms of giving everyone an opportunity to work with all kinds of kids, I think that, that would be, that would be one thing. Yeah. And I think that would, that would be, that would also be interesting to how the teachers could, would react to that. Yeah. That, that, that might be it. That'd be, that'd be it. I would, I would, I would take that one as a wish. That's a good one. Thank you so much for your time. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Oh, same here. Thanks a lot. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you.